0: Внимание говорит и показывает Москва.
1: которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин никто не слушал. Послушайте Россия, Привет. Это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности с новым, с гоном вас с новым веком.
2: So this week we've all got Georgia on our minds. We've got Georgia on our minds because an opposition leader is in prison. We've got Georgia on our minds because democracy there is in retreat. We've got Georgia on our minds because protesters are in the streets again. And we've got Georgia on our minds because the main beneficiary of the country's latest crisis is clearly Russia, which, oh, by the way, continues to occupy 30 percent of Georgian territory. So we've got Georgia on our minds, but not for good reasons. And today, we'll unpack the crisis in Georgia and what it means. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Medical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name's Brian Whitmore, I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Tbilisi, Georgia, is my old friend, Etto Abouziashvili, a research associate for the caucuses with the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab. ETO has also served in Georgia's Defense and Interior Ministries, as well as in Georgia's National Security Council. Welcome, ETO. It's wonderful to see you. I uh, wish we could be doing this in person. And it's also great to have you on the program. Great to <laughs> And also joining us from Partu, Estonia, is Shota Veniria, a lecturer at the Baltic Defense College. Shota has also served a long career in Georgia, Georgia's foreign ministry, most notably as Georgia's ambassador to the Netherlands. And he's also served as deputy secretary of Georgia's National Security Council. Welcome to the Vertical Show, it's also great to see you.
1: Great, Brian, thank you so much for the opportunity.
2: So the current crisis in Georgia, which we've all been following, Eto from very close range, uh, Shota from a little bit farther away, and me from across the Atlantic. This this crisis has been building for some time, as the ruling Georgian party has attempted to consolidate its grip on power, and the Georgian opposition sadly remains, despite many attempts at unity, to continue to be divided. Georgian Dream leader Bidzina Ivanishvili effectively rules the country as an unelected oligarch, who, let's put it you know bluntly, many suspect of being a Russian asset. Months of mass protests broke out in the summer of 2019, sparking a disproportionate police crackdown. And last month, police arrested opposition leader, Nika Melia, sparking the latest round of the ongoing crisis. And meanwhile, there's this guy in Moscow who likes to be photographed topless, who can only be smiling at this situation. And so let's start with you. It, It wasn't all that long ago that Georgia was considered a beacon of democracy in the South Caucasus. How did we get here?
0: You're right, Brian. Georgia has long been held up as a beacon of democracy in the region. In contrast with Armenia and Azerbaijan, Georgia has long pursued deeper integration into the euro Atlantic family where it belongs to. And this desire to join NATO and EU has been supported by a large majority of the population. It has been extremely increasing trend, especially after the Rose Revolution in the country, And the support for pursuing your Atlantic aspirations continued after 2012 peaceful transition of power from United National Movement to Georgian Dream. Some argue that the desire to join has reduced under Georgian Dream. However, the popular support remains high with 78% of Georgians saying they want to see Georgia to join the alliance. And the same goes with backing EU membership. However, this choice is under threat because Russia's increasing milan influence in the country and because the ruling party's inconsistent actions. Democracy and democratic norms are the very foundation of the path towards the Atlantic community. But unfortunately, we are witnessing backsliding in democracy for the last couple of years. We have seen some authoritarian measures and kleptocratic style rule deployed in Georgia. Uh, Oligarch Pidina ivanishvili's informal governance and weakening of the institutions led to what many assess the state capture, because Ivan Ishwili really has appointed his personal staff, former bodyguards, lawyer, personal doctor, to the senior government positions. Persecutor office, cars, police, state security service, the institutions are not independent anymore. And are also calling alarm bells on the increasing trend of corruption. Mm-hmm. So 2012, peaceful transition of power was seen as an opportunity to advance in democracy. But instead, we have seen the consolidation of power by Georgian Dream-led government. We have seen the worrisome development that have been following the Putin playbook in Russia. Assault on free media, assault on political opponents and non-governmental organizations, arrest of democracy activists and political persecutions. And this all has been happening in the light of extremely increasing polarization. Unfortunately, we are witnessing the facade of democracy and the downgrading of pro-Western agenda. Unfortunately, power is not institutionalized, but monopolized by an oligarch who rules from the behind of curtains. Political crisis is about not letting state capture to advance in Georgia.
2: Yeah, I want to. That's a great summary, Eto, and I want to stick with you and pick up on just a couple of things you said because you noted on one hand, public opinion is still solidly behind joining Western institutions, but that is not translating into concomitant representation in the political arena. The minority seems to be governing Georgia at this time. And on the other hand, you, you correctly mentioned how deeply polarized Georgia is, but it's not on the issues of being part of the West or not. It's on other issues um, that are things we would call in the U.S. cultural issues, issues of, of LGBT rights, for example, or feminism, the, the Georgian Orthodox Church, and so on. So how can you speak to this a little bit? Why is public opinion not really translated into the political realities? Um, It it seems that Georgians aren't being represented by their government.
0: Uh, That's the question that we in Georgia and outside of Georgia trying to answer because the statements of the current ruling party and the actions, unfortunately, they differ. We do not see the steps that should be taken towards UN-NATO integration. We do not see the institutions Uh, becoming strong. We do not see the uh, freedom of speech to be respected in Georgia. So these all uh, are kind of the big situation of why Georgia is not advancing in its Euro-Atlantic aspirations. And I would say the country today is choosing between democratic values and rule of law on the one side, and pass towards authoritarianism, cryptocracy, and freedom on the other. Because rule of law and judiciary are the cornerstones of democracy that should be leading to the Western institutions. But unfortunately, the actions taken by the government uh, are, are not really pointing
2: out to this. Is this just Russia? Or are there problems inside of Georgia that are organic to Georgia? Is this just the result? of Russian, um, this is a debate we have here in the States all the time about Russian malign influence. And people tend to present this as an either or thing. And people that want to dismiss the fact of Russian influence will say, well, no, these divisions in the United States are organic to the United States. They're really our problem. We shouldn't blame them on the Russians. And my answer to that is it's not a mutually exclusive binary choice. Um, So I wanted you to kind of address that because Georgia does have some very deep divisions um, over certain issues that certainly have been exploited by the Russians. So I wanted you to speak to that a little bit before I move on to Shota. who will have much to react to.
0: Yes, correct. Uh, You are right that there are some issues that already exist in Georgia. It means that uh, Russians are not inventing some problems in Georgia, but they are exploiting this. Mm -hmm. And these are some kind of attitudes toward the West, especially when they are trying to use the LGBT topic or, for example, portraying the West as somebody who is trying to take Georgian traditions or religion away from Georgians. This is uh, just to mention for, for, for the audience, these topics are really important for Georgians. And, of course, Russia knows how to manipulate with the attitudes, how to manipulate with minds of Georgia. But I wouldn't say that the problem is only Russia because the, if the institutions... Uh, we're strong in Georgia, Russia would not be enough strong and Russian influence would not be that strong to kind of um, lead Georgia against the Western path. So the problem is with inside the country, with judiciary, with weak institutions, with corruption. And as you correctly mentioned many times that the corruption is a new communist. this, This is all that we are witnessing in Georgia. And this is all that Russia wants to see in Georgia. Basically, this is all that prevents Georgia from entering NATO and EU. So Russia doesn't really need to have tanks and weapons deployed here, but all this that is happening in the country right now.
2: Yeah, no, they're accomplishing right now what they couldn't accomplish by invading Georgia with tanks back in 2008, which served to consolidate the country. And what we're seeing playing out in Georgia right now, and and not just in Georgia, we see it playing out in Ukraine, we see it playing out in Moldova, is this normative struggle that's going on right now between liberal democracy on one hand and kleptocratic autocracy on the other. And this is the the, the countries that are located closest to Russia— And Georgia happens to be one of those, is that where this battle is the most intense. I want to bring Shota in. Um, Shota, you've had a long, long career in government dealing with foreign affairs issues. How do you see, how did we end up in this place? And we're going to get at this a little bit in the second half, but how do we get out of it?
1: Well, uh, yeah, the first question is easier to answer, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll start from that. Uh, Actually, we were very gradually and steadily moving uh, to this point for last decade, you know, and the trends were quite alarming. But still, there was a combination of things that uh, smoothly led us to this backsliding and brought us to this situation where the country is polarized. It's uh, divided into two halves, different planets The the planets that cannot talk to each other and that require, you know, a very high level EU uh, mediation to just sit around the table and keep talking. We're not even talking about the uh, uh, solutions or agreements. Two sides cannot even properly talk. And this is the best. Uh, gift to the Russian Federation and to the hybrid warfare that Russia Federation is waging uh, uh, in Georgia. And as Eto very correctly mentioned, you know, they're just exploiting our vulnerabilities and weaknesses, and they're masters in doing this. So let me just explain a little bit of how gradually we, we, we got to this point uh, with the polarization, with blurring the lines between the party, ruling party, and the state institutions, this is something that was mentioned in the statement of the United States Embassy in after the elections. You know, and then when the ruling party is talking only to its electorate, and when the ruling party is governing only the voters that voted for that particular party, this is the, the, something that. Actually, puts more oil into the
2: fire of polarization, and there is just, no. Just, if I can just interject for a moment, that's about forty-eight percent of the population. If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, judging from the results of the last election.
1: Well, we, we, we don't even really know because this uh, election uh, outcomes of that elections are very shaky. I right. personally do not believe in what uh, the Central Election uh, Committee right. gave us the uh, final uh, outcome of that elections, and it was manipulated for sure. I can uh, absolutely uh, be sure about that. But when, uh, well, the details of how much uh, was manipulated and what was the real uh, support to the Georgian Green Party and the opposition, it's uh, it's something that I don't know. But what I do know for sure, and what even this manipulated election results showed is that actually opposition voters were uh, more than the ones that voted for the ruling party. So actually, even, Uh, with this manipulated election outcomes, there is the situation where it is very clear that the society voted for the change because majority voted no to the voting party. But then, you know, uh, uh, because uh, as uh, was mentioned already, uh, all the state institutions, all the apparatus uh, is under the control of one party, of one person. You know, it is very difficult to come up with the evidence. You know, what now the government and the ruling party is manipulating with is that, okay, give us give us the evidence. You know, that's their narrative. They're saying, why weren't you able to prove that the elections were, were rigged? Give us the proof, and we will uh, call this not elections. But actually, Shota and Eto'o, we are not in the position to provide any evidence. The Prosecutor's I- Office... And all the other public institutions and the courts are there to prove the elections, uh, whether the elections were correctly handled or not. But we're talking about the situation where there is no doubt by anyone who has any understanding of Georgia that the prosecutor's office or the courts will ever give any evidence against the ruling party or against uh, any sort of uh, election rigging. So the, we're in this vicious cycle, you know, because of these diplomatic statements from the diplomatic corps and some uh, international organizations, which is the standard, you know, copy paste statements we hear everywhere in the world that yeah. it was kind of competitive, but not free and fair. So mm-hmm. when the government manipulates with this, And they say there will be no snap elections because it was competitive. You see, everybody recognized the outcomes of the elections except Georgian opposition. And Georgian civil society actually failed to come up with the evidence of election rigging. But it's not true. There were thousands and thousands of cases brought to the courts and to the Central Election Committee, and they were just baselessly rejected altogether without any substantial uh, discussion about the content of these claims by the opposition and by the civil society. So how how should we bring this evidence then?
2: So there's something I actually wanna, I know Etta wants to jump in, but there's something I, I want to um, kind of run by you. And that is that, While Georgia may be polarized, it is not polarized on which side of the normative struggle the world is in right now it wants to be on. It clearly wants to be on the side of the West, and it clearly does not want to be a Russian vassal state. At the same time, Benzina Ivanishvili, who— you know, earned his whole fortune in Russia. And I would argue, I don't even think his fortune is his fortune. I think he's the custodian of somebody else's money, but that's just my, my opinion on that. I'd like to see some good journalistic research on where Mr. Ivanishvili's money really came from, but it is also an article of faith among many Georgians that he's a Russian asset. And I don't, I just don't understand how a party that is affiliated with his name can continue to rule in Georgia, given where public opinion is at. Can you, can you explain that to me?
1: Yeah, well, I'll try. You know, the thing is that uh, basically pro-Russian narrative in Georgia is still marginal and marginally unpopular. So every credible political party that wants to be in power, they will claim that they are pro-Western. So this majority of the population in Georgia who are not interested or or involved in this foreign policy debate, they uh, would not hear from any political party that actually, you know, we now have to abandon the West pro-Western course and we, we need to go to Russia. That's not the indicator. It will not make it into the narrative and public statements of any political party. What we have to examine is... What the actors are doing on the ground versus what they're saying, because everybody is saying they're pro-Western, everybody is saying they they want EU and NATO. But at the same time, if we see what kind of a state we have ended up with, and this is something you asked in the beginning, you know how how did we end up? I'll tell you how how did we end up here. We ended up here because. There was a gradual demolishing of all the state institutions, all the democratic processes and procedures. There was the disregard of uh, anything that was a credible pro-Western and democratic uh, in the country by consolidating a a, a one one man authoritarian uh, regime and by bringing back corruption in every layer of Georgia's uh, society. By uh, bringing back, you know, this uh, us versus them uh, mentality where, you know, if you want to earn money, if you do not want to be left out in the dark, starving, then you have to support the ruling party. You know, and then at the same time, we're told that the Georgian dream is going to apply for EU membership in 2024. That's not even a joke.
2: That's nice. that's yeah, that's that's high. One could hardly take that seriously. <laughs> I want to bring Eto in, but I also want to throw something else or short. Did you, did you want to finish?
1: Oh, so yeah, just to, to sum up this point, point. And, and this is the best proof for me
2: that Euro, Euro-Atlantic integration
1: for this government is just a narrative, it's not a strategy or an action plan or anything. It's just a narrative because if you say that in this country where we have problems at any point at any sector you point your finger at, and then you, 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 you want to apply for the EU membership when the mediators are telling you what to do if you want to be really pro-Western, and you if you want to be a pro-Western player, here are your five points brought by the EU to the negotiations table. It's not the topic of 2024, it's today. You right. need to decide whether you are an actor which acts like a pro-Western party, or or uh, you act as if you are part of Russia's orbit this is this is your behavior that defines that and not the narrative
2: yeah no i mean and georgia is is unique in that it, it talks the talk of a pro western democracy but its actions are pretty much like a like a russian satellite state there's one thing that does give me a little bit of optimism and that is that I've noticed this cycle in Georgian politics over the 20 years of independence, and what you would have is a ruling party that managed to achieve a supermajority, attempts to manipulate the institutions to guarantee its perpetual supermajority, and then it ends up ruling in a very arrogant way and falling. Um, We saw this happen with Gopsoherdia. We saw this happen with Shevardnadze. We saw this happen with Saakashvili, and I assumed we would see this happen with Georgia Dream. Um. What we saw is they lost their supermajority and they even had to manipulate to get a majority, but they're still ruling and they still control the institutions. And so I know you want to jump in here to, in reaction to some of the things Shoto was saying.
0: Yeah, just a quick point on the assessment of elections. Uh, assessment of elections indicated to be free and fair but actually it wasn't fair. I saw many comments like, okay, these elections were held better than in Belarus and Russia. You don't know how unfair <laughs> and unfair- It's a pretty low bar. <laughs> like. Yeah, and people saying that you don't know how unfair and unfair elections look like. These elections shouldn't be compared with elections of Belarus and Russia, but with those countries who want integration with the West or already are the part of the West. That's why these elections cannot be considered as at least uh, fair, maybe free years, of course. Uh, These elections were more free than in Russia. Uh, I mean, local and international watchdogs have been providing the report on how unfair the elections were. And the US and EU has invested a lot in Georgia, and I think that we should be setting higher goals for elections in Georgia.
2: Yeah, and in the second half, I do want to get into this process, because one of the problems I see over the past four years under the previous US administration is that the US was absent as a player. And when the U.S. is absent as a player, that leaves a void. But we're going to get into that in the second half. Before we get there, I, I want to stick with you a minute, eto because I've been following your excellent work for the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab on, on Russian malign influence in Georgia. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the main vectors of Russia's malign influence operations in Georgia and how you see them evolving, because you're, you're really doing some excellent, excellent work along those lines. Thank you. So Russia has
0: been testing and using various influence operations in Georgia. This includes pro-Russian and far-right political parties and groups financing them, which are trying to change Georgia's Western agenda. This includes various pro-Russian organizations and fundings, uh, cyber attacks on countries' national infrastructure, using media outlets as well as using social media to manipulate and influence the choice of Georgian society. And disinformation campaigns are the cornerstone of Russia's malign influence in Georgia. And uh, this has like two dimensions, internal and external one. In the internal dimension, the target is Georgian society. The Kremlin seeks to exploit the lack of clarity from NATO and EU on Georgia's prospects for membership and to sow doubts in Georgians about reliability of Western partners. And moreover, Kremlin tries to portray the West as a dark power that is trying to break Georgia from within. As for the external dimension, the target is Georgia's Western partners and the Kremlin tries to portray Georgia as an unreliable partner. Mm. So... The, the trend is that the main platform for choice of the Kremlin disinformation uh, as a main force theater is Facebook in Georgia. Mm-hmm. We have studied the overt and covert Kremlin disinformation campaigns that targeted Georgia's Western choice. Uh, there were multiple instances when Facebook deleted these kind of networks, which were co- directly linked with Russia, and they, they made this attribution. And it's huge when Facebook makes attributions, saying, particularly government. Behind you're, being, you're being
2: very modest, Eto. I think Facebook made that, that choice after you exposed this, if I'm not mistaken, am I right? <laughs> yeah,
0: see, we're, we're working closely with Facebook. But the main thing is that Facebook should say the, whom they are attributing it with, and they attributed it to uh, Russian government. But unfortunately, I have also mention, to mention that we have seen the same Facebook attributions related to the ruling Georgian trim. And basically saying that the ruling party has deployed the same playbook as Russia did in the Georgian information space. Because uh, Facebook found out that the networks operated, uh, the Georgian Dream uh, government has hired marketing and PR companies to manipulate with Georgian uh, society. And these networks were trying to mislead Georgian society via demonizing the opposition parties and what's most worrisome, the United States. Which is a strategic partner uh, of Georgia. So, I mean, it's extremely increasing trend that Facebook has been used as a war theater in Georgia to
2: manipulate the choice. And I, I can't, my last trip to Georgia was back in September of 2019. I, I saw you both there at the McCain Institute's Tbilisi uh, Security Conference. And I was struck during that visit to Georgia with how much things had changed. Uh, we all remember the the so-called Patriots of Georgia storming into the conference hall during the McCain Institute's uh, conference, which is something you never would have seen happen in the past. And this is another, you know, a vector of of malign influence. I am sure the patriots of Georgia did not do that without explicit authorization from the top. And I wouldn't even exclude that such an operation was cooked up in Moscow, uh, knowing that they could embarrass the United States in in this regard and make Georgia look not to be pro-American. This vector, I I wonder how much traction it has in Georgia. What Moscow is trying to do and their allies in, in the government in Georgia are trying to do is make this implicit argument that if Georgia goes West, then Georgia's so-called traditional values are going to be undermined. Um, they're using you know, homophobia and, and other irrational fears like that to work. How much traction do you see this having? Georgia is a deeply kind of traditional, conservative, and very religious country, but at the same time, a country that's very pro-Western. How much traction does this narrative have?
0: You're absolutely right, Brian. So, Georgian far right, pro Russian, and anti Western political parties and groups have become noticeably active both online and offline prior to the parliamentary elections, but also during the last couple of years. And Alliance of Patriots, which is directly financed by the Kremlin and which is also handling the party's election campaign they have been really dangerous. They, they are very well-known in Georgia for their anti-Western xenophobic and true statements. So what the party's agenda right now is to portray Turkey as the same enemy as Russia, to kind of say that they are the same. They are the same occupiers. They have been deploying the billboards where Turkey's uh, neighboring region, Ajara, was the, in red, same as in Russia-occupied regions, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, basically wow. the same. Turkey is occupying your territories, and they're doing the same information operations online as well. And it's it's a it's a Kremlin tactic to distract Georgians from ongoing threat posed by Russia and influence society's political choice. And I should also mention here the Georgian March, which has been increasingly active. This political party has links with Russia, and these links were exposed
2: because by- there's a Russian March that plays the same things. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yes, Estonian intelligence service provided a report about this. Unfortunately, not Georgian security service. So this far-right party, Alliance of Patriots, is is focused on Azerbaijan and uh, on Turkey and portraying Turkey as an enemy. Georgian dream, Georgian march is focused on Azerbaijan. So what they are trying to do, they are exploiting the disputed territory between Georgia and Azerbaijan. They have been suing the topic of disputed territory to fuel negative emotions of Georgians towards Azerbaijan and say that Azerbaijan is the same enemy as Russia. Basically, the same Kremlin tactics of distracting attention.
2: Mm, right. No, this is this is a, a very common Kremlin tactic. Shota, I saw you wanted to jump in and you seem to be signaling.
1: Yeah, yeah. I wanted to just rewind a little bit and try to explain, you know, how Russians are trying to exploit the bipolar foreign policy of uh, the Georgian dream to pressure it to kind of officially change course and to switch from the Western orbit to the Russian orbit. And Gavrilov's visit this is this is the monumental moment in my
2: life you opinion. mean the the visit of the russian mp to 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 georgia when he sat in the speaker's chair which sparked the protest in the summer of 19 yeah
1: yeah when when the parliament of georgia officially invited a interparliamentary group chaired by a communist member of the russian duma who is chairing at the same time, ironically, a communist member of Duma chairing the Orthodox Interparliamentary Group? Yeah, that's yes.
2: ironic, and he also was fought on the on the uh, against Georgia and Abkhazia, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, that, uh, there were some talks about that as well, but that's that's not the main thing here. The main thing here is that this group was invited to have a session in Georgia's parliament, a known tool of Russia's. Melaine foreign influence was invited by the chairman and leadership of Georgia's parliament to hold a session in Tbilisi, And then when public outrage burst out actually against this and when everybody still realized uh, in Tbilisi and also in Moscow that this is not the right time to push for more, you know, because it was a test in my understanding to see whether if Georgia's society is ready for more pro-Russian narratives. Because pro-Russian narratives still, as I said, are marginal. What you hear in, in Georgia's information ecosystem is anti-Western, mainly. So Russians are not actually trying to argue and prove that Russia is a better alternative for Georgia. What they're trying to do is that if you cannot defeat it, just tam it. That's mm-hmm. the strategy. Right. So they're not to elevate themselves to the level of the West. They're trying to drag West down to their right. level. Right. And, and to argue that basically, you know, it's the same, you know, you will be governed from, from Washington, Brussels, or Moscow. It's going to be the same for you Georgians, you know, and then here is... Uh, this big neighbor which will be there forever, and if you do not behave, we can make things even worse. So that is clearly a strategy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then then I must say to my my great regret that Russians are trying to fill in the void created by the West in the region. Mm -hmm and the absence of Western attention to the region at the appropriate level. And Nagorno-Karabakh was the best demonstration of that, the conflict of Nagorno-Karabakh. When, you know, the hot phase of conflict unfolded and it began, then people in Europe and in the United States started to wake up and they they remembered suddenly that there is this means group which is trying to solve this conflict for, for 30 years.
2: For 30 years, yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> principles which have been agreed 12 years ago, and there is not even a single uh, instance where we have progress in the implementation process. So what Russians did, they hijacked the principles and made it their own peace deal. So if you see the peace deal signed by by Moscow, uh, um, Baku, and uh, Yerevan, this is basically and largely built on the Madrid agreement. But what happened is that the West was squeezed out of the region once again, and then the Russia's influences were increased at the expense of that of uh, Western interests because, because there was not so sufficient uh, attention to that. And that, you know, there was... Uh, the attempts from President Macron, there was the attempts from uh, uh, Secretary Pompeo to, to intervene and to to solve the conflict, but when it's just a one-time attempt and you just try yep. to solve that complex problem without a strategy, like an ad hoc thing, it doesn't happen. And that's what Russia exploited, and now Russians have military presence. yeah no
2: they've created facts on the ground and and i wouldn't say the west was squeezed out i would say largely we took ourselves out um we took ourselves out it was a conscious decision to the previous administration one i hope is going to be corrected by this administration
1: back to your initial question how did we end up here gradually and this is partly because the inefficient uh, attention of the west and because of the void created by that inefficient attention that russia is always ready to fail. They're always ready to take this uh, opportunity if it's given to them, and that's what's going on now in the region.
2: This is to You've provided us with a perfect segue to shift gears into our second half. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at what Georgia's friends in the West can do in the current crisis. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from a town I miss dearly, Tbilisi, Georgia, is Eto Buziashvili. Eto is a research associate for the caucuses with the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Lab. Eto has also served in Georgia's Defense and Interior Ministries, as well as in Georgia's National Security Council. And joining me from another town I miss and love dearly, Tartu, Estonia, is my old friend, Shota Grenadier. is a lecturer at the Baltic Defense College. He also served for a long time in Georgia's foreign ministry, most notably as Georgia's ambassador to the Netherlands, and as Deputy Secretary of the Georgian National Security Council. I'd also like to remind you to subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at Power vertical.org and you can follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical. это Навальный. безопасности с новым
1: годом
0: вас, с новым веком.
2: So Georgia does not lack friends in the West, both in North America and in Europe, who want the very best for it. And I've long argued that a Georgia that is closely aligned with the West, and ideally, in my opinion, as a member of NATO, would not just be a consumer of security, but also a provider of security, mainly in the Black Sea region. But to put it mildly, these are not the best of times for Georgia's defenders in Washington, in Brussels, or in other Western capitals. The backsliding on democracy. The rise of Kremlin backed parties like the so called Patriots of Georgia, the return of Russian influence, the attacks on free enterprise like the campaign against the deep water port in Anaklia, and the investigations against Mamuka Kazaradze and Badri Zaparidze have all given ammunition to those who would like to just wash their hands of the Georgia problem. Say, this is not our problem. It's just a small, dysfunctional country in the Caucasus. Let the Russians handle it. What's going on in Georgia is giving ammunition. To those in our Western capitals that would like to do that, people like me who want to be helping Georgia have a very difficult argument to make right now. It was was an easy argument in the past, but it's a really difficult argument right now. And what I want to do in this segment is just let's have a free-flowing discussion among three old friends about the best way forward. I mean, I I see an opportunity right now. You've never had a US president who is more interested in your part of the world than, the, than President Biden. You've never had a president with a team of people, and we know many of these people personally who are, you know we all know many of these people personally, who are knowledgeable about Georgia and want the best for it. So there is a window of opportunity right now with the current U.S. administration, but as Shota pointed out in the last segment, there's a lot of facts on the ground that have been created over the past four years or so that are that are going to be very, very, very difficult to overcome. So I met you both at a time that feels like a different reality, like a different planet even, um, and not just because of COVID. Because it was a different political reality, you were both working for the National Security Council in the administration of former President Georgi Margvelashvili, whose name I is the only Georgian president whose name I have trouble pronouncing. Um, so, to back in 2017, you helped organize a meeting of Western experts under the guise of the National Security Council in your capacity as Deputy Secretary at the Presidential Palace to brainstorm about how to best provide for Georgia's security amid the threat from your aggressive northern neighbor. This is you had us all in the presidential palace around that big, cool round table in the National Security Council with the president, you know, and, and I could not imagine this happening today. And again, not just because of COVID. I just couldn't imagine such a meeting taking place in Tbilisi right now. So just the same question to both of you to get us rolling. What can Georgia's friends in the West do? What should Should we do? I don't know who wants to start, so I'm not going to choose. Whoever wants to start, just jump right in. Show to go.
1: (laughs) Okay. Okay. Uh, Basically, I keep saying this over and over again, and I can also admit that this is easier said than done, maybe, but without a actionable strategy from the West about the future of that part of the world and the region. It is going to be that way, always. Russia will feel that they have an upper hand, that they're close, that they can can keep the West out just by destabilizing those countries, and Russia will continue treating those countries as the sphere of their uh, exclusive influence. And they know that, you know, this occupation, annexation, conflicts, and all sorts of destabilizing actions are the ammunition for Russia's foreign policy tool. And it gives a sort of the arguments for uh, for those that you mentioned earlier, Brian, that want to wash their hands uh, and, and leave Georgia alone in Russia's sphere of influence. So here, here, I mean, we really need to start from having a Black Sea strategy. Mm-hmm. And we we need to see a Black Sea strategy uh, and Black Sea security as
2: the indispensable part of the Euro-Atlantic security. It's the front line, right? It's one of the the front lines. It's the maritime front line.
1: And this is the most exposed segment of NATO. Mm -hmm. So there are three NATO member states, uh, Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey, two special partners, Ukraine and Georgia, and Russia. Right? Russia is a threat, which is putting threat to all five. And then, actually, what happens is that uh, we do not have a common vision of shared security between the countries that are threatened by the Russian Federation. And there is no strategy of how to incorporate our efforts, you know, for the better regional security, just like the Baltic states and the Nordic states did, you know. That's that's a great analogy that we mm-hmm. could use. But there are uh, NATO member states, there are EU member states, there are NATO and EU member states in, in, in that region which cooperate perfectly. They understand that the regional security is homogeneous, you know, they cannot just divide up these uh, spheres of influence uh, in a way that uh, Russia wants it. So they invest in the shared security mm. altogether, no matter if they're a member of NATO or EU or whatever. In the Black Sea region, we see it very, very differently. We see Turkey playing this game, you know, with Russia from time to time, these fluctuating relations. And we Bulgaria. Yeah, we see Bulgaria always trying not to irritate Russia with the new initiatives and keep things, you know, below the radar. We see Romania as the uh, real front runner now yeah. for uh, uh, for NATO's interests in the region, and we see Georgia and Ukraine, which are lost somewhere, you know, uh, in, in in that big geopolitical game, and nobody has an answer, you know, of, of yeah. what we're, what should what should we do with this country?
2: So Schulte, you do? took you took the words right out of my mouth on the Black Sea, because this is something I've I mean you we, we've both been arguing this for a long time. If if you look at the map of the Black Sea littoral states, right? At first, superficially, it looks really good for NATO, as you pointed out. You you have you have NATO members Romania, Bulgaria, and in, in, in Turkey, and you have NATO partners, Georgia and Ukraine. It should be a NATO, it this should be NATO's lake right? But it's not. And the reason it's not is because Turkey's not terribly reliable an ally and Bulgaria is not terribly reliable an ally, right? So you have Romania, which is a terrific ally, but it's just one country, right? So we really, in this is what I taught mean about Georgia being a provider of security and not just a consumer, because if you have those two anchors of Georgia and Ukraine on that, on that Black Sea, that helps mitigate the problems that sometimes problematic allies like Bulgaria and Turkey make. But that is moot unless the domestic political situation in Georgia is conducive to Euro-Atlantic integration. And this is what, I mean, because there's kind of two things here. Where should Georgia be in the geopolitical constellation? I know where I think it should be. I think it should be right in NATO, right? But but unfortunately, I don't get to make that decision. (laughs) But um, before we get there, you have to get Georgia to a place where nobody can reasonably say no. Nobody could reasonably say no, Georgia's not ready for NATO. No, Georgia hasn't met the criteria to be to be integrated into the Euro Atlantic space. And this, like I want to turn to you, Eto on this. I what, mean, what can Georgia's friends in the West do to Help the domestic political difficulties that Georgia is having right now, mindful of the fact that these, uh, this is, you know, this is Georgia's problem to solve itself, and we should not be intervening in your internal affairs. But what can Georgia's friends in the West do to be of assistance in this situation? Uh, yeah, Biden's
0: administration priorities to fight corruption and defend human rights was perceived as a great signal among Georgian society. So, Washington is full of Georgia's friends. Many people have reacted with concerns about elections and uh, political persecutions, like congressmen, think tanks, big newspapers like Washington Post, and our B- Baltic partners as well have been calling uh, alarm bells over the situation in Georgia. We have seen so many open letters signed by international experts and current and former high officials, so many calls and statements to resolve the situation now it's high time for more specific steps to be taken Mm -hmm. so those reasonable for the actions that undermine democracy in georgia must see that they have created a very serious crisis here and they will be responded accordingly i mean people have done everything on the ground the protests by civil society NGOs writing reports media just highlighting everything so i would say that georgians have done a lot And that's why now they are looking toward the West. So there should be real penalties imposed on the threat actors. Uh, In Washington, the great experts like uh, David Kramer have been calling on sanctioning Ivanishvili and his whole circle. And some have been arguing that Ivanishvili is not afraid of sanctions. Of course he is. His fortune is the most vulnerable thing for him. And his fortune is what he cares about the most. Western sanctions on officials in Georgia will have really significant influence in terms of deterring these actors from undermining the democracy in the country. And especially given that it will be hard for Georgian officials for some political reasons to move their assets to Russia. So pressure from the U.S., is more important now than it, it was ever. And President Biden understands this, and the people he has appointed to senior foreign policy positions do understand what's at stake for Georgia. And the United States can have a major impact here. And also, by the way, I should I should really mention it here. You cannot imagine how the Biden's latest quote on Putin that he is a killer and he will pay the price has mm. been just blown up Georgian internet today. People were posting that Biden will make some real steps. And this is hope for Georgians as well, because these kind of steps to the situation, to the country as well, that the U.S. will react. U.S. will fight corruption and U.S. will defend human
2: rights. Yeah, no, I've seen um, like uh, indications that some very serious sanctions are going to be coming soon. And I'm glad you brought up the thing of sanctioning Ivanishvili. This is something I've been arguing about for for a long time, most recently, the last time I was in Georgia. And actually, we hosted here in Washington a, uh, a meeting with Georgian opposition figures kind of bringing up this possibility. But to do it. We need concrete evidence that Ivanishvili is violating some kind of money laundering laws or something like that, and then we can make a serious case. Because I've I've been arguing that we have to sanction Russia's proxies and cutouts as kind of Russian assets, right? I would not want to see sanctions crafted as sanctions against Georgia. I don't like the optics of that, right? I would like to see sanctions against Shvili crafted as these are sanctions against a Russian oligarch who is destroying democracy in our ally, Georgia. So he would not be able to spin this in this this, uh, xenophobic way. Shota, I saw you wanted to react to something Eto said.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I wanted to react in general about the question that, that you asked. So what should the Friends of Georgia do? Well, the short answer is that we should find ways to more effectively empower the uh, real pro-democracy and pro-Western stakeholders in Georgia. Because as we said now, there is, even by manipulated election outcomes, 52% of Georgian population who voted for the pro-Western Euro-Atlantic course of the country, and we see clearly that the country is moving in the opposite direction. So what we need to do in the first place is to go beyond these diplomatic statements, you know, and we we have to explain to everybody what is really going on there. And Georgia's voice is not loud enough, Brian, we need your help there. What you are doing now, you are helping Georgia's democracy because more people will hear what is going on, actually on the ground in more details. But when it comes, you know, to this battle of narratives, what we hear is that after the elections, we hear this diplomatic statement that was not so bad. It was actually competitive, meaning that there were other candidates, you know, (laughs) unlike uh, Belarus and uh, Russia. But it was not really fair, but we didn't say that these elections were not the right elections. This is not what we expected from democracy. We we did not hear it from many of Georgia's friends. The same for the judiciary reform. You know, we appreciate very, very much specifically the role of the United States in helping the judiciary reform. But when you see that it's screwed up, it's not going in the right direction, and it's a joke, it's not a reform, then you need to come out and say that. It's a failed reform because, you know, when Melia will go to jail and then the party leaders will justify this as a independent decision of independent courts and the government has nothing to do with that. If you said that the judiciary reform is going on fine, then you just support the statement you want it or not. You become part of it. So we really need to start calling everything its own names. We have to say that Idzina Ivanishvili is the player which has played a the most devastating growth for georgia's democracy by patronizing the prosecutor's office by patronizing the courts by destroying the democratic institutions by destroying the state apparatus and by you know corrupting all this pro democratic process that was going on in the country and only then you know the pro democracy real pro democracy voices and stakeholders in georgia will have voice enough and mandate and power enough, you know, to to argue against this huge machine that is fighting against them to squeeze them out and to oppress their voice. So here, not saying what is really going on there and continuing with this diplomatic statements, you know, without naming everything its own names means supporting backsliding of Georgia's democracy. This is not friendship anymore, and we see this from more and more real. Friends of Georgia on the state level, also through the official channel, saying that, okay, no, this is not the elections that we expect. Right. No, this is not the judiciary that we expect from the country which aspires for you know ap- applying for joining EU in 2024. This is these are the things that we really need to say, otherwise we're giving ammunition to the ruling regimes narratives and then they use it for the oppression of the real democratic processes and real democratic stakeholders in the country by referring back to those statements that that are considered to be diplomatic or friendly or whatever but these are doing very very bad job for georgia you yeah, know
2: I, I expect secretary blinken's office is going to call things as they are um just knowing his history and i'm sure our president is not known for mincing his his words so <laughs> i take it from your um your your remarks that you would favor sanctioning you on really
1: Yes, but first that that cannot be the, the uh, step uh, right away. We have to start, you know, by 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 saying why. We yes, to, well, that's and we need the evidence, and this is where some Georgian, Georgian about journalists about have a lot of work to do. Expose, expose that the processes in Georgia are not going the way that official narrative of the ruling regime is trying to sell to us, and then then the next stage would be. Credible talk about the sanctions, but if we do not even say that the elections were rigged, we, we do not say that the courts are taking politically motivated decisions. And if in Brussels, standing in front of uh, Borrell, Prime Minister dares to talk about, you know, him not being able to influence the court decision, thus he is not able to release uh, Melia from from prison, and then everybody is nodding their heads as, as if it was true. This is not helping right. to escalate the crisis in Georgia and this is fueling the crisis because mm-hmm. this is giving more ammunition to a force that is
2: trying to obstruct the democratic process. So I want to get you in here because we're bumping up against the end but uh Etzo, I know you wanted to jump in.
0: Yeah just a quick remarks uh, based on what Shota said the west and in particularly the US should make clear to Ivanishvili and his cronies that Commitments to democracy is commitments to rules that everybody agrees, and it applies to Georgia as well. And commitment to democracy means having freedom of speech, rule of law, depoliticized institutions, uh, and elimination of corruption. Because the only people laughing about the current situation are sitting in the Kremlin right now. They know that this all damages Georgia's prospects of joining UN-NATO.
2: Yeah, no, and I could um, – God, I could have this conversation for another hour, but unfortunately we do have to wrap it up. I can only point to um, a tweet that – you you know what I'm referring to, eto our, our common friend, Tumas Hendrik Ilvis, the former president of Estonia, a, a big friend of Georgia and a big friend of all of ours, who tweeted, Suckart Velo, you deserve better than this, and that was – that basically – summed it up for me. So on that note, we shall wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. Unfortunately, I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Ricle Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Tbilisi, Georgia has been my old friend Edo a research associate for the caucuses with the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab. ETO has also served in Georgia's Defense and Interior Ministries as well as in Georgia's National Security Council. And joining us from Tartu, Estonia has been another old French, Shota Grinania, a lecturer at the Baltic Defense College. Shota also served as Georgia's ambassador to the Netherlands and is Deputy Secretary of the National Security Council. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion and thanks so much for staying up so late with us, I know it's almost midnight where both of you are. Thank you, uh, th- Thank you. And uh, I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Cecilia Wynn handles our all-important post-production duties. That means making all of us sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating rating review. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And of course, you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our awesome production team.